So we've been studying these last few days of Jesus' earthly life. We've been in what's called the Passion Week, which is the last week of Jesus' life. We've seen him in a number of roles. The first one was the sacrificial lamb. Then we looked at the stricken shepherd. We looked at the rejected Messiah last week. And then today we're coming to the fourth role in which Mark presents him, which I've titled the Condemned King. That's why we were singing this morning about the king. So we see him as the condemned king today. According to Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, God promised to raise up a descendant of David, King David, who would one day rule his people as both an earthly and an eternal king. reads like this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be, be, uh, be called, the Lord our righteousness. We see as we get to the New Testament that Jesus himself is revealed as king. His own, or I'm sorry, but uh, Paul's words, Paul refers to him in First Timothy as king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. In First Timothy chapter six, Paul refers to Jesus as the only sovereign. That's a king of ma- or that's a ma- majestic term. Only sovereign and King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We also see in the Book of Revelation that he's referred to as King of the Nations, Lord of Lord, and King of Kings. And we also know that from our perspective on end times, our eschatology, that Jesus ultimately will reign as King, an earthly King for a thousand years during what we refer to as the Millennial Kingdom. And so we find not just in the Old Testament, but the New Testament, this concept, this role that Jesus will fulfill as both a earthly king and then ultimately as an eternal king. So today we're going to look at that. The one thing, however, that isn't made directly clear in the Old Testament was the condemnation of the king. We can look at Isaiah chapter 53, which refers to the suffering servant, and that makes it clear that he would suffer, die, and ultimately um, pay the price for our sins. And so we can infer from the Old Testament that the king would ultimately be condemned because of what the, you know, the Bible, as it, con- as it um, combines these roles that Jesus will fulfill, not just the king, but the Messiah, the suffering servant. When you put all those together, you know and you realize that the king ultimately would be put to death. The king would be ultimately condemned. Jesus himself told his disciples, this is why I'm here. The leaders are going to reject me, they're going to kill me, but I'm going to rise from the dead. So we put all those things together, and we would see that this supposed king would ultimately be Condemned, And so that's what we look at today, and that's the way Mark actually presents him. Look at um, chapter 15 of Mark. The first two verses are sort of a follow-up to our passage last week, which was the trial of the Sanhedrin, where they condemned Jesus to death. So we look at chapter 15. It says, Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation, and binding Jesus led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, and he said, It is as you say. So what we basically find here is that the Sanhedrin delivered Jesus, the king, over to Pilate to ultimately be condemned 
to death. I want you to turn to Luke, if you would. Luke chapter 22. According to Luke's account, their purpose in meeting this morning was specifically to accuse and to question Jesus one more time. Luke chapter 22, verse 66. When it was day, the council of elders and the people assembled. That's the same exact event that Mark is talking about. Both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they said to him, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. And they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. So basically, they pulled Jesus aside one last time to accuse him. Matthew specifically states that their purpose in all of this was just to condemn him. We shared last week that this was really a verdict in search of a trial. Meaning they already had their minds made up. And that's made clear. And so this, in some respects, is just a formality. They know that the night before the trial had been a sham. They know it was held at, at the uh, house of Caiaphas, the chief priest. They know that really wasn't legit. They violated all the rules, and so this was just a formality now. They finally met in the chambers, pronounced judgment on them. They could say they at least followed the rules and had a trial. Immediately following this meeting, they bound Jesus and they took him over to Pilate, it says. Now, Pilate was the prefect or the governor of Judea from A.D. 26 to about A.D. 36. Basically, the prefect, when it came to judicial matters, the governor was both judge and jury. So he was the final say. Everything rested with him. So there wasn't a jury trial. Didn't get to go before a righteous judge. It was just one man who'd make all the decisions. And so that's what they did was... They took him to Jesus. Now, according to Luke chapter 23, I'll read that in a second here, the, the, the charge against Jesus by the Sanhedrin when it comes to Pilate is going to be one of treason, high treason. Remember, their issue was blasphemy. But you remember how part of the trial they tried to make Jesus out to be a terrorist, an enemy of Rome? They were saying, oh, he's going to tear down the temple. Well, that didn't stick too well because they couldn't get all the witnesses to agree. So, ultimately, they condemned him based on blasphemy, but they couldn't go to Pilate with that charge. They wanted Jesus dead. But Pilate could care less. Rome could care less about the religious inklings of the Jews or their plans to put Jesus to death. So they had to come up with something else. So Luke chapter 23, verse 2 says this, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So there's basically three charges there that they level against Jesus when they go to Pilate. First was misleading, or as the NET likes to render it, they were they accused him of subverting the nation, which basically is disturbing the peace. He's a troublemaker. Look at all the things he's been doing to Rome here. Now, as you think about that, there's no such thing. Jesus didn't do that. In fact, his public meetings were always fairly peaceful, except for one small group of people. It's always the leaders, right? They were the ones always instigating things. So they basically are misleading are misleading Pilate here, saying that the first charge was that he subverted the nation. He was a troublemaker. 
The second charge was that he was encouraging Jews not to pay taxes to Rome. Well, we know that Jesus didn't do that. In fact, what did Jesus say when they came to Jesus? Yeah, give to Caesar what Caesar's. But instead, they come up with these trumped-up charges. In fact, there was one point when Peter needed to pay his taxes. What did Jesus do? Told him to go to the sea and get the fish. The coin would come out of the mouth and pay the taxes, even with that. So we know Jesus paid his taxes. So certainly he didn't encourage the Jews not to pay taxes. Now, the reason they did this was because that was a contentious issue. Remember, a few weeks ago, we had studied that a little bit, the different views on paying taxes, where some of the religious leaders felt they shouldn't pay taxes at all, like the Maccabeans. Don't pay the taxes. Others, like the Pharisees, encouraged paying taxes, even though they didn't like it very much, and so it was a very contentious issue, which is one of the reasons why they make that an issue here. I think they thought that by accusing Jesus of not paying taxes, maybe Pilate would believe it because many Jews didn't want to pay taxes. So it's in some respects, and uh, I'm going to step on some political toes here, I'm, I'm sure to some degree, but it's much like when, when one politician accuses another politician of being a racist when there's no evidence that that individual is a racist. But you know it might stick if you just say it enough times, or because it's such a hot issue. And I'm not referring to Trump specifically, I'm just simply saying that this is what we do in politics today. You know, like what somebody says, accuse him of racism, because today it just sticks because everybody hates racism, right? And that's kind of what they did with Jesus here with the taxes. We'll just say it doesn't want everybody to pay taxes. The third charge was that he claimed to be a king. Now that was an important one because that was a direct threat to Rome. And anybody that would try to establish themselves as a king or ultimately claim to be a king would be a threat, obviously, to Caesar. So basically, these three things amounted to what's called high treason against Rome. The Sanhedrin knew that there was no precedent to have Jesus put to death for violating their religion, because Rome could care less about that. So they came to Pilate with deceit and some trumped-up charges. We learn later that Pilate wasn't really fooled. He knew their reason. In fact, Mark says that Pilate knew it was all out of envy. So their little ruse didn't really work with Pilate. He knew that they were just envious because of the popularity Jesus had acquired. Remember, Jesus was gaining a fairly large following. We know that at the feedings, he had fifteen to 20,000 people at those things. And those were just a couple of events. And so Pilate knew they're coming to you because they're jealous. They're just... Envious. So what happens? Well, we move on then to Pilate actually questioning the king. And we see that he finds him innocent. Look at chapter 15 of Mark again. But you notice the theme king there showed up. This is why I've titled this section The Condemnation of the King, because you'll find that word occurring over and over here. But Mark chapter, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 15 We have the questioning of the king. Verse 2, Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, It is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly at that point. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. So initially when the Sanhedrin first delivered Jesus, To Pilate, he refuses to accept their charges because he knows that it's out of envy. But Pilate was not a friend of the Jews. We know that to be a fact. In fact, we know that he was also insensitive to their concerns. He even liked to poke them. According to Josephus, he was known to antagonize the Jews. He's a little... I refer to it... 
told Dustin and even Amy at times, I'm like, I don't do a whole lot of posting on Facebook. I post things here and there, but occasionally when somebody um, posts something, I might reply to it. Sometimes I do it just to poke the bear. I just feel a little bit, just want to poke the bear, agitate somebody, irritate them a little bit, you know? Well, that was, that was Pilate. He liked to do things to agitate the Jews. He ordered their slaughter. Um, he was not a kind individual. But yet we see his indifference to their charges here. But notice he attempts to turn them away, ultimately in the end, which is rather startling considering, um, I think he probably just want to, doesn't want to deal with Jesus here because he knows that it would satisfy the Jewish leaders. Form of antagonism here. But he relents anyway, and he questions Jesus only to find him innocent of the false charges. It says that, he questioned him. He came right out and he asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered in the affirmative. It is as you say. Yes, I'm the king. John's account provides more details. Why don't you turn to John chapter 18. John's account is a little more full. Verse 33, it says, Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you that about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to that truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. That's where Pilate then says, what is truth? So basically what we find here is that Pilate is examining him. In a, nut, for, in a nutshell, Jesus confirms his divinity. Confirms his, or not his divinity, his sovereignty. Yeah, I'm a king. But my kingdom is not of this world. It's not an earthly one, which is why Pilate at this point doesn't feel any threat. He recognizes Jesus' statement, so you are a king. You're a king over a people. But you're no threat to me, you're no threat to Rome, because you have no interest in fighting, which is pretty clear. On the night that Jesus was arrested, his men came prepared to fight. They had swords. In fact, Peter brought a sword. Remember, he cut off the chief priest's servant's ear. One of the Gospels makes it pretty clear that they came to fight, to defend. They faced off against a 600-man army of, of Romans, it appears. But it was fairly calm, because Jesus basically said, No. In fact, he told Peter, put the sword away. So Pilate sees all of this. He doesn't see him as a threat or an instigator. He finds Jesus guiltless regarding the false claims. However, notice that the Jews now, the leaders here, probably realize this is not going the way that we had hoped. So it says here that they began to accuse him harshly. Now, there are some better translations of that, the NET and some others. Um, it actually is more the idea that they repeatedly 
argued or they repeatedly accused him of many things. In other words, they, they looked at what Pilate was doing. He came back and apparently doesn't find him guilty. They see it not going their way, and so they sort of upped their rhetoric at this point. Sort of accusing of maybe of many more things, throwing things to the wall to see if they would stick. They did this repeatedly. In fact, John 18 tells us that they called him an evildoer. Luke 22 says that they said he was stirring up the people everywhere from Galilee to Jerusalem, so he was causing trouble everywhere. But Jesus stayed silent. Look at verses 4 and 5 again of Mark 15. Then Pilate questioned him, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. That might have led partly to Pilate's conviction that Jesus was innocent, watching how he responded to the charges. Just stayed quiet. You know, it doesn't appear here that Jesus was interested in declaring his innocence because... He doesn't say anything about that, does he? He simply says, yeah, I'm a king, but it's not of this earth. But he doesn't argue for his innocence, doesn't accuse Pilate of dealing with him unjustly, doesn't even point a finger at the Jews, does he? Rather remarkable. Part of that's because Jesus was there for a specific purpose, Mark chapter 8.31 says, and he began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So the reason why Jesus stayed there quietly was because he had accepted his God-ordained fate as a king that would ultimately be condemned. He had every right as a king to not face that and to stand up for his rights, but he didn't. He stayed quiet. So the very next thing that happens here now is Pilate is convinced of this ruse, convinced Jesus is innocent, convinced that Jesus is not a threat, recognized that Jesus at least believes he's a king over a people. So Pilate makes this attempt now to release their king back to them. Look at verses 6 and following of Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 6. Now at the feast, he released for them one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrection who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him who you call king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him! But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So, Pilate here is now doing everything he can to release Jesus back. He does not want to have to condemn Jesus to death. So rather than do the right thing and release an innocent man, he tries to pass the buck. In fact, we find in Luke chapter 23 that he's doing about everything he can. It's not all recorded here in Mark's account, but he actually reaches out to um, Herod. And the reason for that is 
Jesus is from Galilee, and Herod was the governor of that region. And so Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at this point. And so Pilate thinks, huh, I'm going to pass the buck off to Herod. Let him deal with it, because Jesus is from his area. So he does. He sends Jesus off to Herod. Now Herod's thrilled to receive him because he wanted to see Jesus do a dog and pony show for him. He, wants, he just purely wants to see Jesus do some miracles. You know, do some magic, Jesus. And so Herod is more than willing to accept Jesus from Pilate, but Jesus doesn't do anything for him. So Herod basically has him mocked. He's all discouraged. Jesus didn't do the song and dance for him, so he pushes him back to Pilate. So now Pilate's got Jesus back again, so that first attempt to pass the buck doesn't really work. So now Jesus is back in front of Pilate again. And this attempt now to try to not deal with the situation, to try to release Jesus, is a political one. There's this thing that happened, this thing that Pilate usually did at this time every year. As a gesture of goodwill to the Jews, he would take a prisoner generally somebody who they felt was unjustly convicted, and as an act of goodwill towards the Jews to sort of keep the peace, to appease them because of their hatred for Rome, Pilate would agree to let somebody from a Jew that had been arrested and sent to prison, he would agree to release them. And again, it was a goodwill gesture to keep the peace. And so typically, because the Jews knew this, the Jews would go to Pilate and specifically say, hey, it's time and we'd like this individual released. And so that's basically what they did. The Jews actually approached him this time, because they knew that he would do it. They say they want an individual released. He comes up with the name, and he, I think this is partly, generally they would come to him with a name, but I think he figured, I'm going to choose somebody that they definitely don't want back. So he chooses a murderer named Barabbas. Because certainly they're not going to want a murderer back, right? So he picks the name this time. He goes to him and says, or they come to him and he says, How about Barabbas? Now, Barabbas, we're told here, was a known murderer. He was a member of something called the insurrection, which was an uprising against Rome. So, this is a pretty big step for Pilate because this was an enemy of the state. So, if you think about this for a second, you've got this known individual, Barabbas, who's a murderer. You don't want him in society. But he also is truly an enemy of the state and been convicted of causing an uprising to overthrow Rome. And yet somehow the governor says, it's better to try to release him. Well, why would that be? Because he really thinks there's no way the Jews are going to accept this guy. So clearly this is my out. They'll take Jesus and it's off my plate. So even though the thing with Herod didn't work out, this will work out when I put the decision back in the hands of the people. Do you even notice um, how he refers to this? Um... He actually uses the name of Barabbas, but he doesn't use the name of Jesus. He specifically says, do you want me to release to you your king? In fact, twice I think it's the Gospel of John says that he refers to Jesus as your king. Even here he says, in verse 9 of chapter 15, Pilate answered them and said, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Notice in verse 12, he said, when they basically start Screaming for Barabbas, he says, What shall I do with him who they call King of the Jews? In some respects, he's basically saying, Your choices are this murderer or your king. 
Now, part of the reason that's significant is because he knew how popular Jesus was among the people. And you know what? Had the story kind of ended there, they probably would have accepted Jesus. Because Jesus was popular among the Jews. He was not popular among the religious leaders. But by all accounts, he had a large public following. So the question is, what happened? Well, it comes down down to those darn religious leaders again. Look at verses 11 through 14. What happened? But the chief priests, by this point, they're probably freaking out. Their plan is backfiring. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. So basically, they had gone in throughout the crowd as religious leaders and convinced them that Jesus was a troublemaker and to ask for Barabbas. So that's what happens. They're able to convince the Jews that it's better to release Barabbas than Jesus. And so what we find here is that Pilate, no matter how much he tried to release Jesus, his plans continued to backfire. And they backfire here. In fact, he was backed into a corner. I want you to turn again to um, John chapter 18, if you would. John chapter 18, we're down in verse 39. It's a fuller account of the story. But you have a custom that I release someone to you for the Passover. Do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him, and they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again, this is to the crowds, said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. In other words, he presented him as a king to the crowds. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man! So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Three times he says he's innocent. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself up to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even, what? More afraid. At this point, he's afraid of a riot. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, do you, or, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat in the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, um, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for Passover, and it was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king! Another attempt. 
So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Look at the, the attempts here that Pilate is, I mean, the hoops he's jumping through to try to prevent condemning Jesus the king. The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So then he handed him over to them to be crucified. So John gives us this great account of the things that Pilate tried to do to avoid condemning Christ. Which again is rather startling because Pilate was not a good man. In fact, we know in another gospel account his wife tried to talk him out of it. Have nothing to do with this man. But what they were able to successfully do was they were able to back him into a corner. Because there were two primary threats at this point that Pilate was trying to avoid. One was a riot. Had the Jews rioted again, much like the insurrection under Barabbas, that all comes down on the governor. Why did you lose control? Why didn't you stomp this down? These governors were under tremendous pressure by Rome to sort of toe the line. And so if something erupted on his watch in Jerusalem, he was the one that would take the heat from Rome. So there was that threat. But the other is this statement, you're not a friend of Caesar. Nobody wanted to be called a non-friend, an enemy of Caesar. That was a political statement. And they knew that that would get him. I would suspect that this was the religious leaders that incited the crowd to, to start chanting, you're no friend of Caesar, you're no friend of Caesar, because they knew that would get to Caesar. And so what we find here is Pilate's attempt to release the king didn't work. Everything backfired. And so ultimately, after numerous attempts, I should have counted these up, it looks like there are six or seven different attempts where he goes back to the people and just says, come on, he's your king! But instead he gets condemned. So what we find in verses 15 through 20 then is Pilate ordering the condemnation of the king. Look at verses 15 through 20. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in a purple or up, up in purple and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments back on him and they led him out to be crucified. So we all know the choice that Pilate made. As shocking as it is to see Pilate condemn an innocent man, and then the soldiers mock him and spit on him and torture him. That should shock us all. Um, but it really shouldn't because Jesus actually predicted it. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. They were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. That's Pilate. And they will mock him. They will spit on him, and they will scourge him. That's the soldiers. And they will kill him. That's the crucifixion. And three days later he will rise again. 
So as much as we should have our sensitivities shocked by what they did to Jesus, it shouldn't come to us ultimately as a shock because it was something Jesus laid out in detail. This is something that would happen. Something that he submitted to. In fact, it was all a part of God's glorious plan of redemption. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 4. It's an interesting statement that Luke makes in Acts chapter 4 about this. Acts chapter 4 and verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand had and your purpose predestined to occur. In other words, what Luke is saying there is that the events that took place, the things that we just read about, all the actions of Pilate, the soldiers, the Romans, the Jews, all of that was part of God's plan. In some respects, it was all orchestrated by him specifically. Herod, Pilate, the Jews, the Romans, all acted according to God's plan. God predestined those events and the outcome as well. So we know that it ultimately wasn't a defeat of the king, was it? Because victory ultimately followed, because Jesus conquered death, and ultimately will conquer his enemies. It was a temporary thing. So we see throughout this text today all these references to king. Because it's another one of the roles that Jesus Christ fulfilled. And I think uh, Mark, as well as the other gospel writers, did a fabulous job of presenting him in that role. Because it's when you think of a king, you generally think of this conquering hero. But what you have here is something much more subtle. You've got the king who's, in many respects, waiting to take the throne. Jesus knew it wasn't his time to do that. Because he had a bigger purpose as the king, and that bigger purpose was to conquer death. Because what you have is not just a king, but you have a servant. You've got a Messiah. You've got a Son of God. And all those roles kind of come together. And so even though the Old Testament promised a king, and even though the New Testament shows that Christ is ultimately that king, what you have in the middle is Christ fulfilling these other roles. So even as king, he will still suffer. He will still die because he ultimately, when everything comes together will fulfill that role as king, both earthly and eternal. So the question for us is, what do we do with that? Where's the practical application for this? I think it's in the same passage we were just in, Acts chapter 4. I want you to see something here. So, we, we know that it was a very difficult time for the early church. We know that they were challenged, um, they were persecuted. Um, and really, what happens in chapter 4 here is, Peter and John are arrested in Acts chapter 4. And they go to prison. And ultimately, they're released from prison. And that's where Luke refers in verse 27 to all of this being a part of God's plan. And he goes back to the cruci- or goes back to the condemnation of Christ and what happened there. And he says, that's all a part of God's plan. So he's talking to these guys. They've just been released from prison, talking to the early church, recording some events, says, hey, this shouldn't shock us or surprise us because even Christ himself, as he suffered, that was all part of God's glorious plan. But as they reflected on that, Look at what happens. 
Verse 27 and 28, we're told that all of that was part of God's divine plan. Okay? Verse 29, And now, Lord, take note of their threats, the threats of the Gentiles, and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak the word of God with boldness. I think that what Luke does here, is he gives us a glimpse as to what our response ought to be as well. There's a number of things that take place here. They ask the Lord to help them speak his word with more confidence. As John and and Peter are released from prison, as the early church looks at the persecution that they're going to face, they're able to reflect back upon what happened with Christ. And they saw that what happened at the condemnation of Christ and his crucifixion, what they see there is that that was all a part of God's plan. That wasn't something out of his control. In the same way, John and Peter's arrest and their imprisonment was all a part of God's plan and purpose and in, under his control. If the big event, Christ's crucifixion, was under God's control, then the smaller events that result from that, our own persecution, if God controls the one, he controls the other. Is that not true? And so what we find here is that as they reflected on that, they cried out to God and they basically said, help us to speak the word of confidence. It says also that they asked the Lord to heal and perform signs and wonders through them. In other words, they asked for God to reveal himself through those events. It says that they were filled with the Spirit and they actually began to speak the word of God with boldness. It's amazing. Reflecting on what happened at Christ, you would think would have scared them and prevented them from wanting to follow in his footsteps. Remember what Peter did. But now Peter here, after that, as he reflects on what happened to Christ, he's emboldened, and he actually goes out now and says that they began to speak the word of God with boldness. It says that they gave testimony to the resurrection of Christ. It also says that they were filled with grace and with charity and unity. Look at verses 32 and following. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property among them, and with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as he had need." Now Joseph, a Levite of Caprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles. So really what you have here is Luke reflecting on what we just studied, the condemnation of this king, Christ, and saying that was part of God's plan. And from there he then looks at the arrest of Peter and John, And he uses it as a catalyst to say, look at what reflecting on that did for them, for the early church. It emboldened them. It gave them more confident. It caused them to speak out or cry out to God and ask him to fill them with the Spirit and be able to speak boldly. If anything, it emboldened them. That's oftentimes the way persecution works. You know, it's interesting watching what's happening in China right now with um, this aggression this campaign, it's literally a campaign. Xi Jinping, the president of China, has um, 
declared very boldly that his purpose is to stomp out the growth and spread of Christianity because it literally has exploded in China. And so now he's a little freaked out. He thinks it's going to destroy Chinese culture. What he doesn't realize is that as he tightens the thumbscrews on Christians there, it's likely that it will actually increase growth. Because they will look back at something like Christ and say, look at what happened to Christ, and it will likely embolden them. And so I think for us, the if you want to call it um, marching orders for us, would be as we reflect on Christ, that ought to embolden us. That ought to strengthen and encourage us. We ought to realize that he truly is the king and that he's simply waiting for his time to take the throne. I don't know about you guys. I'm not a Jew. I know you're not either, but I'm not a Jew, but I look forward to the millennial kingdom. I look forward to worshiping Christ the king on his throne and seeing him for who he is. And as part of that, I'd like to be prepared for that. I would like to be prepared for that. And so I ask for strength, boldness, and encouragement through these things. I was reflecting the other day as I went down to Dayton. Um, I mentioned this gentleman down at Dayton that I've had an opportunity to talk and to share with, um, looking for opportunity to talk to him and praying that God will open more doors. And he did that again this week um, with just another great opportunity to talk with him. And we'll have another opportunity probably this coming week. Um, Sometimes I have to pray for that kind of boldness, you know? And I reflect on if Christ did what he did, I should be able to do those same things in terms of being encouraged and strengthened and speak boldly. So I'll let let us end with that. We'll continue. I think we've only got two more weeks, two other roles to look at for Christ, and then we'll be getting into 2 Corinthians, uh, the second half of that, or the second last three chapters of that.